Hello, I'm Mariette Sneeman. Welcome to Calm, Clear and Helpful, a weekly podcast series about taking really good care of yourself and others. Our topic today is the silent illness. And my guest is award-winning journalist and author Marian Schur, who has just published a book that I hope will find its way into thousands of lives. Welcome, Marian. Thank you, Mariette. It's lovely to be with you. Just to inform our listeners, at the end of our discussion, Marian will give us her three best tips on working from home, and then it will be fun question time. Now, Marian, your book is about an illness which may be silent, but it is very real. Could you please introduce your book to us? Yes, thank you. The book, um, in fact, the working title of the book, which is what we, us authors call a book while we're working on it, we don't have a proper title, was originally Stories of Hope. Because although um, the book is around is people's stories, people, the subtitle of the book is People Coping with Depression and Mental Illness, it ended up being called Surfacing. But why we started off with the title Stories of Hope was literally, it isn't just stories about the really difficult and hard times people have gone through in their various, with their various mental health issues, but that they all have hope and, you know, they have hope uh, and they're all dealing with their various issues. So they're not gloomy, miserable stories. I mean, some of them are definitely very sad stories, but they all have one thing in common and that is hope. Yes, And they're about, I mean, to elaborate further, is, of course, as I say, it's about mental health and dealing with your mental health issues. Yeah. And uh, at this stage, you could also please maybe talk about mental health as not only a silent illness, but also often a secret. Yes. Well, that was what prompted me to do the book. Um, I, as a journalist for 33 years now, I've written on many, many topics and only 26 years ago, I suppose I myself have never haven't suffered from a mental illness um, and wasn't aware of it in my family and wasn't aware of it very much. If a friend of mine had come up to me and say, said, I'm feeling depressed, I'd probably say, oh, I'll take you out for lunch or let's go and have a drink or whatever. I didn't really understand it. And then 26 years ago, I had a column in Cosmopolitan magazine um, where I would go and interview women on their jobs, you know, what they did to qualify and tell us a bit about your job, you know, to help other young women maybe decide on careers. And I was sent to interview a lady called Zane Wilson, most remarkable woman who then, and as I say, 26 years ago, herself coming out of taking 10 years to discover she actually had panic disorder. She desperately wanted to stop anyone else going through the agony, uncertainty, and pain um, of having an illness, as you use the word silent illness, no one could see it, but she was suffering. Um, and she was suffering badly. And when she eventually was diagnosed with panic disorder, put on medication, and, and she miraculously, it was like an overnight thing, felt so much better. She felt she wanted to help other people. So she started what was originally, I think they originally called it the Panic and Anxiety Group. Hmm. And it's now, of course, South African Depression and Anxiety Group. And I was sent to interview Zane. 
And she's told me about mental health issues, which, as I said, I knew nothing about. And eventually she would, you know, being Zane, um, those people that know her, she's, she had a background in marketing. Once she gets a journalist on the hook, she doesn't let go. <laughs> and she started sending me, and you know that, Marriott, and she started sending me um, press releases on issues like bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. And, you know, we think we know what these things are. Most people, for instance think schizophrenia is a split personality and I went on to discover that there is no such thing as a split personality yeah. it's a very real illness and that was it that was the start of a journey for me um, 26 year journey of learning as I went along and interviewing many many people over the years you know who suffered from various mental health issues and eventually leading to the book because in 2005 2006 I was very lucky to be one of the South Africans who was awarded a Carter Fellowship, a Rosalind Carter Mental Health Journalism Fellowship from the Carter Center in America. And um, yeah, and I decided right then that at some point in the future, I would ultimately do a book. And that's now surfacing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know that no group of people is exempt to mental health illness. It it makes one think of the COVID-19 pandemic. And your book proves this because you have interviewed 11 people and written their stories and they're all from very different backgrounds. Yes, absolutely. All total, totally different backgrounds. Could you point out or mention a few of them? Certainly. Well, the book starts with quite a harrowing story, perhaps one of the most harrowing stories in the book. Um, and it's a story of a lady called Diane Naidu. And Diane doesn't, well, all the people, of course, don't mind me using their names. Otherwise, they wouldn't have agreed um, to do the book. And they've all, you know, they all saw their stories and, and agreed to them being published. Diane's is a particularly difficult story. She lost her very beautiful young 15-year-old daughter to suicide. And she was determined to talk about it because she feels that by talking about it, you know, because they had no idea. I mean, she seemed to be an absolutely normal 15-year-old teenager. Um, and she feels by talking about it and me writing about it, she had helped other parents in this situation. Um, and then we have Melissa, Melissa Dupria, who's still a young woman in her early 30s and um, suffered from depression her whole life. Again, it's the story of how it was handled. Daryl Brown, who's a young man from the Cape, and again, who early on in his life, although he didn't know it, um, suffered from depression. And the result of this untreated depression and problems in his life, being a young gay man, in fact, from a small town in the Western Cape, uh, life was pretty tough for him. And he ended up going to live in England, and he ended up jumping in front of a train to obviously take his own life. He didn't lose his life, but he did lose his legs. But today, he is one of the most positive people you could ever meet. Um, every story is different. Cindy Fenzale, who's a doctor, and again, depression her whole life. Sipo Similani, who I think is the most wonderful story in the book, um, he's got the most wonderful sense of um, humor. And he actually tried to take his life three times in one day. Now, this is people listening to this are going to think I'm a bit crazy, but in actual fact, it's a very funny story, the way he tells it, although it's a very serious story. Mm. And again, of course, he managed to not take his life. And he loves to tell his story. 
um, because he knows that in the black community, this is very much a taboo. And he wants people to understand, you know, that this is a very real illness. And it was only both him and Daryl, the guy who jumped in front of the train in England, both of them only learnt that they had depression once they were hospitalised after their suicide attempts. So that's actually quite interesting. Um, The story also includes a woman who suffered, which is very common, from postnatal depression. And her, you know, what happened to her, it got worse and worse until she actually did something about it. And then there's the wonderful A.J. Fenter, a name most South Africans will know. He's a Springbok. He was a Springbok rugby player. Wonderful chap who, when he finished playing Springbok rugby, found himself a little bit lost and found himself in the end suffering from anxiety disorder, which he got completely under control and is doing really, really well today. We also cover... A, a colored lady, Yvette Hess, who has bipolar disorder, which, you know, she's still, you don't have bipolar disorder and then suddenly lose it. She's still battling with it. Um, and a very difficult story was the wonderful Charlene Sunkel, who has schizophrenia. And I say the wonderful Charlene Sunkel because Charlene is an ambassador for schizophrenia. And she goes all over the world, specifically Africa, in fact, you know, helping other people to tell their stories and so to make the world aware of what schizophrenia actually is. And she had a very, very difficult time. And, of course, the story of Zane Wilson, who I mentioned earlier, who suffered um, suffered, and, of course, still suffers if it's not taken care of, which she does, from panic disorder. Um, and I think that sort of covers the 11 people in the book. Yes, I'm, I must say, uh, what struck me was that was the way you wrote it, because when you did the interviews, you were obviously very perceptive. And in the book, you not only say what the people told you, but you talk about their facial expressions and the energy and the room in the room and so on. And and I'm mm. quite awed. So how did you do that? I think it's very important. Otherwise, it's very cold interview um a couple of the people i'm just trying to think now about three of the people i had actually previously met so i had a feel of them and of course same wilson over the years has become a very good friend of mine um so her i know well um i think it's important to give the reader a feel of the person so they feel they're there with that person too that they can almost visualize them there are no photographs in the book no pictures in the book because some people would have wanted this and others didn't so we decided to go without photos and judging by the reaction to the book that hasn't made any difference at all um but i do think it's important for my feelings of what i experienced during those interviews to without overwhelming the story to be in the book and you ask how i do it i think as a journalist of 33 years i've learned i was lucky early on in my career to have great mentors and, you know, I'm still learning. And I think it's important. You've got to make your subject comfortable with you being there. And especially for something like this, because, wow, it doesn't get more personal than this. Yes. The other thing, Marion, that struck me was that you write with great empathy, yet you never convey that feeling of oh, shame. Oh, yes. I mean, none of these people want to be pitted. Um, I would never do that. Um, you, you know, if someone's got heart disease or diabetes, I always use myself and Zane and other people in mental uh, perfect mental health professionals use the example of, you know, and you mentioned the word silent illness. 
that's the whole point. If someone's got heart disease and you know they have, you might say to them, oh, gosh, that's awful. I'm sorry. But, you know, it's like it's an illness. It's just an, it's an illness of the brain. And the last thing they want is your sympathy. They don't want that. They want you to treat them just like you treat anyone else. Yes, and they've got their own powers and strengths. Absolutely. Absolutely. You have to. You have to build up. But, you know, and some days for them, um, many of them I've kept in touch with and are keeping in touch with, in fact, virtually all of them. And I check in on them, see how they're doing. And, yeah, you know, they're still going to have ups and downs. Mm, mm. And, Marian, what, what I noticed in the book that I think very often also in real life, but definitely for many um, of your stories, the individuals with a problem were not taken seriously or were not understood by those closest to them. Yes, this is something, I mean, I, I've used 11 stories here. I've interviewed, oh gosh, I don't know, at least 100, must be more people uh, on mental health over 26 years. Um, and this is the common thread that they say to their friends, to their spouses, to their family, you know, that they're feeling down. And this is all they can't get out of bed. They don't, you know, they have suddenly have no interest in things that before they had interest in you know, going out, um, taking part in exercise or activities. And their family and friends will often say, oh, come on, you know, get over yourself. That's basically it, you know. They don't, because you can't see mental illness, you can't see it, so it's not there. And also because of the stigma, and that's the word that I would use most of what prompted me to write the book. Everything I do on mental health, and I've worked with SADAG, I still work with SADAG 26 years later, helping them with media and so on. And we have conferences for journalists to educate journalists on mental health. And it's all about breaking the stigma. So people understand that when someone says to you, I'm feeling down, yes, maybe they're just having a blue day. We all have those, especially the last um, year. But when is it really clinical depression? And, um, you know, which can be helped. I've interviewed people, families who have lost family members to suicide and what goes through my brain immediately is, oh, gosh, if only these people had had help. Yeah. Having said that, I must say that that may not have helped. There are instances when someone makes up their mind. They are suffering. You can't see it. Again, it's not like a broken arm or broken leg. But they are suffering worse. And eventually they will take their own life. Very often, um, they only reason they haven't taken their life is because they didn't want to cause their family they know that it's going to cause their family to suffer a common thread in many of the stories is that uh, the, is the role of medication and the role of speaking to someone could you please elaborate on that yes again we come back to stigma so first of all it's speaking to someone when I first got my Carter Fellowship um, what actually happens with a Carter Fellowship you're taken to the Carter Center in Atlanta, which is an incredible experience, and meeting President and Mrs. Carter. And Mrs. Carter chairs um, a panel, a very esteemed panel of um, American experts. They are heads of universities, for instance, Harvard, Stanford, Duke, really prestigious universities in America, plus medical experts. Um, and head of the American Press Association, people like that. And you have to explain, because when you get the fellowship, you're doing a project, and you explain what you do. And 
it was very strange for them. I was the second year of um, each year, two South Africans were chosen for a period of eight years. And I went in the second year and I stood up and I said, well, in fact, I used men as an example. I said, well, South African men don't have depression. I did it purposely. It was a bit of a shock tactic. And they, they all looked at me like I, were, I was, you know, what? What are you saying? Mm -hmm. And I explained that, you know, South African men would never admit to having depression. And one of, part of, a very big part of my project, because I was working for men's health, um, was one of the stories I did, which was, um, when is it more, it was for men's health, and it was called, when is it more than just a bad day? And that's the reason is that men especially, and women in this country, to go and see a therapist or a psychiatrist is really considered something you don't talk about. You know, it's a shame. It's shameful. Gosh, no, I don't do that. And when it comes to medication, antidepressants, that's again, it's the stigma of saying I'm on antidepressants. And, and the myths around it, that antidepressants, which I also thought, I thought once you're on antidepressants, that was it. You can, in fact, one of my trips, because eventually I became on the South African board of um, the Carter Fellowships, and the one trip to the States, uh, we had a lecture from someone who told us they have just really, um, studies have shown that antidepressants, they can now prove that antidepressants are not addictive. So you can be on them for six months and come off them. But during that six months, wow, that's going to make a big difference to your depression. And, it, you know, it does. Um, I've done countless interviews with people that have said, antidepressants saved my life. Mm. So I think that's, you know, the big message in this country. It's seen mental health is, is issue. Any issue to do with mental health is there's a stigma, there's a taboo, and especially in certain communities, certainly with the black community. Uh, there's a quote that really got to me, and that is, uh, it was something said by Dr. Cindy Fonsale, the medical doctor, uh, on uh, yes. whose story you wrote. She said, I didn't think this could be depression with everything I had to be thankful for. Yes, you'll see that in a few stories. Um, that's a very common one. And people think if someone, for instance, commits suicide, well, why did they take their life? Because they had everything. I mean, Robin Williams they had, you know, a good marriage, which Cindy had. She had a good marriage. She's got two beautiful children. She's a loving husband. She's a medical doctor. My goodness, what more could you want? But clinical depression, and I use the words clinical depression because it is, a, as I, we were talking about other illnesses, if you have heart disease, it might be a blockage of an artery. Well, with a mental health illness, it can be depending on the illness, and whether it's bipolar, schizophrenia, it affects different parts of your brain. So it's, in fact, it's an illness of the brain. And this, you know, I mean, Cindy's saying that how could she be depressed? Well, there was nothing, without medication, there was nothing she could do about it. She will have that feeling. Cindy couldn't get out of bed. She couldn't go to work. And she loves her job. She loves being a medical doctor. But also her story talks about the difficult times she had as a young doctor when she was training and so on and, you know, that's a tough road. But, you know, I've listened to so many stories of suicide and each one is different. And many, in fact, most are not because I had nothing to live for, quite the opposite. Then my other question that I've been thinking about is workplace, discrimination in the workplace. Because, you know, even if your family gets clued up about your condition, 
it's still very, very difficult to, to go and admit it at work. This is a very big problem. Many years ago, I did a story. Um, in fact, one of the first stories I ever did on mental health, and Zane had introduced me to this family. I can't remember their name now. And they have three sons. This was a very unusual story. And they have four sons. Three sons had been diagnosed over a period of time, over a few years, with schizophrenia. So when the first son was diagnosed with schizophrenia, the parents didn't know. I mean, they didn't realize. They realized it was a serious mental illness. And I'm going back now, yeah, 26 years. It was, I think, perhaps the first story I did. And it took them several years before he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. When the second son went off to university and he smoked dacha, which, let's face it, most youngsters that go off to university are going to do something similar, that triggered and does trigger schizophrenia. If you have, I don't know scientifically if I should use the word gene, but there's something there. It is a genetic um, default, and that triggered schizophrenia in him. But this time, the parents knew the signs, and he knew the signs. He came home. And they took him to specialists and he was put on medication. He was fine. And believe it or not, third son goes to university, a different university, and stupidly uh, took drugs knowing the risk. I mean, he must have known the risk and the same thing happened to him. But even quicker, they got him on medication. Now, both those last two boys led quite good lives. Uh, one was a graphic designer. I can't remember quite what the other one did. And he got a job. He went for a job interview, the youngest one. And it came to the point where you have to fill in a form about your health and your medical aid. And he thought, if I put down I'm schizophrenic, I'm not going to get this job. And he left it off. And he got the job. But ultimately, it worried him so much that he went to his bosses. And of course, he told them and immediately lost his job. And that's schizophrenia, which is quite an extreme illness. Mm. But even with depression, I've interviewed countless people. In fact, one woman who was going to be in this book, she left her job at a very well-known South African company um, because of bullying in the workplace, um, which is going to be part of another book I'm going to do next. And um, she was too nervous to do the book. because, And it would have been difficult because we couldn't name the company and for various reasons – uh, again, she suffered from depression, and I worked with this company, and I know for a fact of at least four people in this company who have suffered from depression, um, and it's extreme pressure at work coupled with depression is not a good mix. So, yes, it is. It's. I mean, I could. there's endless stories of companies not being interesting and not understanding. Having said that, I must be fair, and a lot of companies today have wellness programs, including mental health programs um so that's a good thing that they they are beginning to recognize it and they are beginning to do something about it yes and i i think the book will definitely contribute to awareness because it's called surfacing and if you read the book you can see how in really dire circumstances people can still find a way to surface absolutely absolutely there is help out there there's psychiatrists and psychologists and mariette if i could just take this opportunity to explain the difference because even I didn't know the difference. Yes, please do. A psychiatrist is a qualified medical doctor. They first do their medical degree and then, like any other doctor, if they choose to specialize, they specialize in illness of the brain and they do psychiatry. 
And they then, because they're a medical doctor, they can give prescriptions. And then you have a psychologist who goes through almost as rigorous uh, um, qualification, I know because my daughter's one, apart from your going right up to a master's degree, it's certainly actually, when I think about it, is as rigorous. You do a master's degree, then you do the same as a doctor, you do internship and you do, for clinical psychology, you do community service. But they can't prescribe medication. What they do, they are therapists. And many specialized in um, various specializations, such as cognitive behavioral therapy, um, and and so on. So depending on what kind of depression, depending on what kind of help you want, you would choose your psychologist. Now that's the person you go and you talk to. They're indispensable. They are absolutely indispensable. And you also at each at the end of each chapter, there's a toolbox that you can maybe say more about. Yes. Well, I'm very proud to say my daughter, <laughs> giving her a plug here. She did the t- she helped me with the tips because I'm not a medical um, mental health professional. I stress that always, and she is. So uh, she did the tips. Some of the people, like Cindy Vinzel, who's a medical doctor, she gave her own tips, obviously. Charlene Sunkel, who's really an expert on schizophrenia, she and Zane Wilson, they contributed to their own tips because they really are experts. Um, but otherwise, um, my daughter Alexa did did do the tips um, because we felt that was very important that people get some ideas because not everybody is clinically depressed but a lot most people have said to me after reading the book they saw themselves in at least one chapter and it might just be something like mindfulness oh yes that would help me if I do mindfulness or it would help me perhaps I should get out and do some exercise whatever it is the tips are there and also the tips aren't just for the person but they're for parents for instance of a child who they see, read this book and think, well, I see some of those points this person made, I see in my own child. Maybe I should pay more attention when they come home and tell me they're having a miserable time at school. Or maybe when they tell me that they feel they're a girl that doesn't feel like other girls, or they're a boy that thinks they may be homosexual, whatever it is, I must listen and I must listen properly. Where can people find the book? They can find the book at several places. Um, not everybody wants to go rushing off to bookstores. They are available. It is available in bookstores. Um, but if you don't want to, it is online. A good idea is SADAC, www.sadac, South African Depression and Anxiety Group, .org. Um, they are offering the book at a particularly good price. Um, and delivery, and then there's Loot, and there's Amazon, and the usual online stores. So it's very, very easy to get the book. Right. And now, Marion, we've come to your three best tips on working from home. Uh-huh. Okay, so my, my first tip is, you know, get up as normal. I usually get up about hopper six, seven, and a normal day I would go to gym, but of course with gyms um, being shut, well not shut, they're open, but I'm not back at gym. I do some exercise, I take my dogs to the park or I, I walk on my treadmill, I'm lucky enough to have a treadmill, then come in and make some breakfast, do whatever I've got to do. And I am sitting at my computer by 8.30 every day. In other words, what I'm saying is if you work from home, treat it as a normal work day. I get dressed, I put makeup on. Um, I think that's quite important. So you feel you're at work. Next tip is you treat it again as a normal work day. I take my tea break, 11 o'clock or whatever, I'll go and make myself a cup of tea and walk around the garden, clear my head, come in, work till lunchtime, stop and have lunch, 
go back to work. I treat it as a completely normal work day. And I think I've done this since my children were um, little. And I think if you have small children, when you walk in your study, your office, or whatever you want to call it, they must know mummy's going to work or daddy's going to work. And that's their workplace. And, you know, it's work. They never disturbed me. They knew. I mean, if they did, it was a serious thing. They knew mummy was at work. And it's worked very well for me. So my third tip would be reinvent yourself. Now, this may sound strange, and I can only talk as a writer. My skill is writing. So starting off as a freelance journalist working for magazines, well, thank goodness I decided to change track because there's very few magazines around to work for. So I started writing for the corporate world, which I still do. Um, and also I decided I liked hearing people's stories, so I blended that into ghostwriting. And I've been so privileged to write some amazing stories. Last year, I was lucky enough to write the story of Ilana Gershlovitz, who has two sons with autism. Um, her story of um, her journey with her sons with autism. And I'm just quickly peeking at my bookshelf so I get the name of the book right, Saving My Sons. Mm. It's an amazing story of how she bought her one son, literally recovered one child from autism. I've written 10 books now myself, some business books, some um, autobiographical and some of my own books, which I will go on doing. So I think that's my third tip is whatever you do, is make sure you keep up with technology because if you don't keep up with technology, you're going to find yourself in trouble. And the other thing is don't be frightened to reinvent yourself. Embrace technology and keep reinventing yourself. Good advice. Now, I'm sitting with surfacing the book in front of me, and here comes your fun question. Ah. I really <laughs> like the shade of blue that you've got on the cover. So from the top of your head, when I say the word blue, what comes to mind? My husband's collection of blue shirts. My oh. husband loves blue shirts. And when he very rarely buys another color, everybody comments, oh my goodness, you're wearing a shirt of a different color. So I think that's the first thing that comes to mind when I think of blue, weirdly enough. Yeah, that I didn't expect. <laughs> so thank you so much, Marion, for being with us and for telling us more about surfacing. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yes, I must say from my side, I think this book will do a lot of good. Thank you. I hope so, because that's the whole point of it. Oh, by the way, all proceeds are from the book are going to SADAC. So um, I didn't write the book to make lots of money. Nobody writes books to make lots of money. Yeah. Um, I just hope SADAC benefits from it. Yes, that was very generous. My pleasure. To our listeners, if you're listening and found this episode helpful, please share it with someone you care about. I'd really appreciate it if you would rate and review Calm, Clear and Helpful where you download your podcasts. Please subscribe to the series if you don't want to miss the bonus episodes. Calm, Clear and Helpful is compiled, hosted and edited by me, Mariette Sneeman, and the music is by Mart Marie Sneeman. Yes, we are related. Catch you next Tuesday at 9 